Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome everyone. This is Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my other co-host for this next segment, Liz Luce. Who is also a Ross. Hi, Liz. Hello, Nathan. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm fantastic as well. Are you so excited to be with us for the next five weeks? I definitely am. Awesome. <laughs> so we'll get right into it, but just wanted to give a quick overview. So for the next five weeks, we will be covering all aspects or most of the aspects of child abuse, including some prevention and techniques. So unlike our previous segment where we had one story over four weeks, each week we will have different profession- professionals in talking about their experiences, and providing us with some insight on what is happening right now in our community and how we can change. So before I turn it over to our guests that are in the audience today, I want to just give us a quick overview of stats for our Child Abuse Prevention Month. So Child Abuse Prevention started in the month, started in 1983, when the community really got together to focus on how we as a community can help wrap around our parents who are struggling with different areas that lead to abuse and neglect. So our latest stat that we have is our federal fiscal year 2014, which shows that nationally there are about 600,000 kids in 2014 who suffered some kind of abuse and neglect. And unfortunately, 1,500 of those children ended up passing away because of abuse and neglect. And so as an organization, as a community, we really want to wrap around our families and figure out how do we take those numbers down to zero because 1,500 is way too many children to to die before way before their time for something that we hope can be prevented. So with that in mind, I want to turn it over to our guests here with us today. We have Christina Brown and Gray Indris, uh, who are both professions in the child welfare uh, world, and they're going to talk about their experiences. So hello, you two. Hello. Hi, Gray. Hi, hi, hi. Christina, why don't you go first? Okay. Well, first, let me introduce myself. My name is Christina Brown, and I'm the program director at the Child Abuse Prevention Association, uh, CAPA for short, and we're located in Independence, Missouri. Uh, There, I do oversee and provide leadership and structural structural, um, um, leadership to all of the programs, so clinical programs, prevention programs, and community education programs at CAPA. Um, And and so that's where I have direct influence in the child welfare world right now. All right. That's outstanding. Uh, My name is Gray Endress. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've, this past December, uh, was my 30th anniversary in child welfare. I've I've worked in uh, residential care. I've worked psychiatric hospitals. Currently, I'm a co-owner of LifeWorks Family Treatment Group. And for the past uh, 10 plus years, I've been an adjunct instructor at University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the Kansas University Schools of Social Welfare. Okay. 
Awesome. So you both have a lot of experience and knowledge, which will be helpful because I won't have to talk as much. So <laughs> with that in mind, what are the stats? I just read that you know, the 2014 fiscal year for the federal stats are 600,000. What are the stats saying for our Missouri and Kansas kids? Well, we do have some more recent statistics for uh, locally here for Kansas and Missouri. In 2015, we have those numbers. Um, so in the state of Missouri, there were 68,623 reports of child abuse and neglect. And then in Kansas in 2015, there were 65,631 reports of child abuse and neglect. And of those totals, 25,431 of those reports were right from right here in the Kansas City metro area, which oh, is wow. a huge number. Right. Huge. And I, I totally agree and want to echo what you said about um, all of our efforts to reduce that number um, down to zero. So um, some of the other things that we've seen here locally is that um, of the types of abuse, the largest and most common type of abuse is, is physical abuse. And a lot of times those are uh, representative in the cases that we see on the news. So mm-hmm. those are the ones that make the headlines mm-hmm. and the ones that really tug at our heartstrings. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But what we don't really hear much about are the large number of reports of neglect because most often um, the reports of neglect, while they're the largest number of reports, there are they are less likely to be substantiated. Mm. They're much harder to be uh, proven and to have evidence to, to back them up. So uh, those are equally as important, but many times they are uh, getting less attention. So. Okay. And, and Gray, is, is that your experience as well? Do those stats seem fairly accurate for the young people and the families you work with? Uh, absolutely. Emotional abuse and neglect are the most difficult to talk about. Uh, they don't leave bruises. They don't leave broken bones. So the evidence is, <clears throat> is certainly more hard, more difficult to come by. Um, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it happens every day. It's in every neighborhood. It's not just in the, you know, the Northeast side of Kansas city. It's in blue Springs. It's in Bonner Springs. It's in Kansas city, Kansas. It's in North Kansas city. It's in Belton. It's all corners of our metropolitan area. No, uh, no population is immune for child abuse, neglect, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. And, that, and that's really good to hear. I think we often, especially because of the way that the news sometimes portrays incidents, we all think that it's an isolated community within our greater Kansas City area. So it is important to hear that our suburbs are are hit with this just as much as our inner city mm-hmm. families. And so <clears throat> looking at those is is really important. Uh, so with that, when we're talking about the stats and you're saying that 68,000, is that Right in Missouri. In Missouri, yep, over sixty-eight thousand. And a lot of that in reports. Kansas City. What do, as we start looking into the concentration of areas, what are some of the things that we're seeing repeatedly throughout our families that are leading to this these abuse and neglect charges? So, um, really, I think the, the, you're asking a great question, and you're getting at what are some of the causes, or what mm-hmm. can be you know point pinpointed as some of the root causes. Um, unfortunately, with child abuse and neglect, there is no one one root cause, which is why it's so hard to get that number down to zero because mm-hmm. there isn't one thing that leads to child abuse or neglect. And uh, unfortunately, child abuse and neglect is pervasive across all of those groups that you just mentioned, right. and all of those areas that Gray mentioned. Um, it's not specific to one population. And so for 
different families, a cause, the cause can be very different. But there are some identified risk factors that over uh, time there's been a lot of observation and tried to, you know, gather empirical evidence of what some of the risk factors are that are associated with child abuse and neglect. Uh, but I do want to just have a little disclaimer that these risk factors don't necessarily mean that child <coughs> abuse or neglect is going, going to, happen. to happen. So even if this yes. risk factor is present in a family, that doesn't mean that they're going to abuse or neglect their kids. But there are some things that are commonly seen in association with abuse or neglect. And that those things include uh, families who experience social isolation many times, families who have had a history or experienced domestic violence, uh, families or children who are exposed to community violence, uh, also families who may have had a history or experienced substance abuse. Um, another common one that affects most families is stress. Mm. So uh, many times if there's um, parental stress or family stress, mm -hmm. stress on the relationships within the family, uh, lack of Financial resources. stress. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. financial yeah. stress, you're absolutely right. Lack of resources and things like that can increase the likelihood of child abuse or neglect. And then also, you know, maybe some um, attachment or unhealthy relationships between the caregiver and the child can um, increase the likelihood of potential child abuse or neglect. Well, the other thing that's also getting a lot of traction is how trauma plays into child abuse and neglect. Um, certainly every child that's experienced abuse and neglect has experienced trauma. But what we have found is that those family systems frequently will have generations of trauma, and the trauma passes down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And in 2009, I was in some training in Yonkers, New York, for a model called the Sanctuary Model. And at that time, I wasn't aware of some research, and, and the presenter shared it. It was in regards to a research study by Kaiser Permanente called the ACEs Research, mm -hmm. Adverse Childhood Experiences. Mm -hmm. And they found that um, as they sat down with their their initial study population, which wasn't a great sample um, but since as they have reproduced that study, the results have all been the same. If you've experienced uh, separation, if you've experienced physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, exposure to substance abuse, you're more likely to continue to be exposed to those as an adult growing up, passing it on down to your children. In addition, the ACEs study also found that you're also more predisposed to medical issues like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, a higher risk for sexually transmitted diseases, mm -hmm. for domestic violence. Um, so all those things then funnel down to shorter lives. Yeah. And, and we have to go to break here in, in a sec. But what I do want to touch on to make sure we touch on is how do we help our young people or our people in general who have those higher risk factors overcome them because I took the ACEs for, for myself and I had all but one checked. And so it's very frightening to think that I'm going to just abuse my kids because everything, the indicators are all there. It's saying that I have all of these risk factors. And so we want to definitely provide our, our people with an understanding that, yes, this is here, but what is it that you can do to help protect yourself? And so when we come back from break, I would very much like to get into, you know, is it that you just leave the, the community that you're in or what are some of the root issues to why we're dealing with social isolation when we return on Fostering Hope? 
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. Hi, Liz. Hello. We're joined with our guests, Christina and Gray, and they were talking about their professional standpoints and how child abuse has affected our community, both in our inner Kansas City area, but in our greater Kansas City, both Missouri and Kansas side. So before break, Gray, you were talking about the ACES score and how there, there are factors that increase the risk of repeated abuse and neglect. And we were wanting to get to some preventative factors later on. But before we got to that, I did want to go back and touch on more of those societal factors. And so, Christina, you gave some of the overviews such as social isolation Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so I would imagine that a a general person would think, well, why don't you just leave that community or why don't you just stop being angry? So can you both kind of talk to us about really – what the root causes are, what leads to that social isolation? Is it financial? Is it the emotional instability from your, from both of your perspectives? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think before moving on to that one quick thing in mm-hmm. regards to the ACEs and trauma. So we know that trauma affects individuals at the biological level, at the cellular level. We know that trauma impacts families and how it affects families. Those same levels of trauma also impact all the organizations that are out there to help. We call those trauma-organized or trauma-impacted organizations. So trauma impacts us at all levels, kind of like the way a virus impacts a computer. Mm -hmm. Trauma impacts the human experience, our operating system of love. It happens at all levels, which then seeps down to all levels of our communities, whether you're in Blue Springs or Bonner Springs. Mm -hmm. So um, so that, that part, I think, is important to, to be acknowledged because uh, while it's gaining traction, I don't think we can talk enough ab- about it. Okay. So back to the social isolation and, and the issues. So I, I was referred a case from Children's Division a couple of years ago. It was a, it was a young boy who, who uh, was in a psychiatrist's office for his appointment with his mom. He became aggressive he ran out of the office. He he broke his mother's windshield. He 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 was bleeding from cuts on the glass. Ended up being hospitalized. While hospitalized, the the facility recommended residential care, and and the mom was like, "I don't have resources for residential care. You know, maybe I could get four or five days of a hospital stay, mm-hmm. but I don't have the resources." And at that point, it was in, she she was encouraged to to contact Children's Division and sign over her rights so that her child would be taken care of. Mm. When I got involved, I was amazed that that occurred because we had skipped over mm-hmm. um, some of the resources that are available, like Jackson County Mental Health Levy Funds, like Senate bills that are in position for the Department of Mental Health to help support. We went right to sign over your rights. Mm-hmm. And that's an example where the system failed that client and and the the – the sad news of that story was that reunification never occurred. So reunification mean the kid never went back home. Kid never went back home. Come on. Never, never occurred. Wow. Ray, you're, you're, that was a perfect example because so many times you're right. The, you know, the child abuse or the neglect or the difficult situation that occurs that it impacts the child negatively really stems from some kind of trauma, mm-hmm. right? Some kind of trauma that doesn't discriminate. Mm-hmm. based on socioeconomic status or or gender or race or ethnicity or whatever or where you live. And so um 
Then there are the systemic issues. So you have these, you know, micro level family factors, Mm -hmm. and then you have these macro level systemic community factors where, um, yet sometimes it's the systems that fail. And Mm -hmm. I think that's an important piece. Um, We were also talking a little bit before the break about how, um, how do communities, you asked the question, how do people kind of break this cycle? You mm-hmm. know, sometimes people do ask questions like, well, why, you know, simplify it. Why don't they just move or why right. don't they just do this? Um, and um, it's it's so easy to op- oversimplify uh, when we're talking about things that are not happening to mm-hmm. us. But there are so many pieces and communities are uh, do have all of these different. It's a compound of traumas that w- when you're looking at a community, it, it's everybody in the community and what they contribute. Um, the good and the bad stuff. And so sometimes that's how these ideas or how communities can come to accept when child abuse and neglect is happening and not really have the action that we want to see. There's a community piece that we're starting to see now uh, where we are wanting people to be more educated about uh, the hotline or getting Mm -hmm. involved when we see warning signs of what's going on with kids. Almost every time we uh, see a story on the news about what's going on with a child or a child has died or um, there's something terrible that has happened, there's usually a neighbor or a family member or there's somebody who had a suspicion mm-hmm. or saw something. Um, but most people, um, unfortunately, don't want to get involved or don't know what to do. So yep. that's another societal or systemic piece that maybe the community education um is not is is not as large as it should be. People are yeah. not equipped to respond in ways that they should. Or even as in Gray's example, the hospital um, immediately skipped to having this mom or encouraging this mom to sign over her rights rather than trying to partner with her and empower mm-hmm. her. So sometimes it's the system or the community members that are lacking the education or lacking the equipment to be as involved. And and when you say that, especially when you talk about the case of the parent having to give over their rights, to me, I can see how an abuse situation is more likely to happen if I don't want to give up my rights to my child and I just take them back home, but I continue to not have services. I could see eventually getting so frustrated that I start taking it out on that child in a very physical or neglectful way. And so I think that's the other piece is that when we refuse services to our families because we're requiring them to give up their child. We're almost forcing them to take actions into their own hands when sometimes they can't. And so that was, you know, really important to hear, I think, from that. So in, in your all's opinion, um, what do you think, you know, having the choice between, yes, I'm going to give my child to the state or I'm going to take my child home and they're going to continue um, having these behaviors that would mm-hmm. um, effectively get them into a residential treatment center if they had the availability to pay for it. Um, What do you see that um, could be done in the community to um, assist more with those situations where it it almost seems like they have no other option? Well, that's probably the million-dollar question. (laughs) I'm just wanting your ideas if you have any. (laughs) Well, you know, I think there there are all these really wonderful organizations like the ones that Gray mentioned that are trauma-informed or trauma-responsive. And many times um, there is a, um, a failure on our parts because I'm one, a member of one of those organizations that uh, we don't always collaborate in the way that we should. 
Um, we don't, we're so busy, you know, doing the work mm-hmm. that we're doing within the walls of our organization that we are not in touch with each other in the way that we should and building the network to wrap around the families mm-hmm. and being more present in the community so that families know that we're there. Um, so if this mom, you know, hears from this facility, you need to just contact Children's Division and, and sign over your rights. It would have been great if this mom had recalled maybe a commercial or recalled maybe seeing, oh, well, I, wait a minute, I think I've heard of Kappa, and maybe I can call them. Um, you know, he's saying this, but I don't want to do that. Let me call someone else and, and find out what my other options yeah, are. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so I know we have to, again, go to break this conversation. I'm really interested in it. I could go over forever. But uh, when we come back, I do want to continue on. What are some of those solutions? But I also want to kind of get into what are the perceptions of our families who are suffering from the many factors that lead to abuse and neglect. And so when we get back, Gray, I would hope that you would be able to kind of come at it from the social work standpoint of what are what are our perceptions and how might that hinder our moving forward with the community when we return on Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. Hi, guests. Hi. Hello, hello. Hi, Liz. <laughs> hello, Nathan. I don't know why I like to start every every time like that, like we're <laughs> greeting for the first time. Before break, we were talking about societal factors and continuing to have an in-depth discussion of the root causes that lead to abuse and neglect. And it really brought a question to my mind of what is our perception of our families who are dealing with abuse and neglect situations? Because I know as a kid that came into foster care from an abuse situation that everyone demonized my mom and for very appropriate reasons. But I also learned that that was something that was extended to all families who end up having their children brought into the foster care system. So, Greg, can you talk to me about what are some of those perceptions that we have of our families and how do we maybe move past them or should we even move past them? I I think it boils down into two things, Nathan. Um, Number one is the perception of future, which I'll come back to in a second. The other one is we don't ask the right questions. When we look at a person who has um, abused a child, we look at them as if there's something wrong with them. Rather than we should be asking the question, what has happened to them? Uh, In 2014, uh, I heard – a, an amazing speaker present at a conference. Uh, her name was Tonier Kane. And you can find her work on YouTube if you Google on YouTube or search on YouTube, Healing Neen, and that's N-E-E-N. Uh, Tonier Kane uh, was a victim of child abuse as a child. She, her story is painful, and, and she can tell it much, much better than I can tell it. But as an adult, she ends up arrested 80 times, hospitalized over 60 times, um, thrown away. While being hospitalized, um, she would have triggers to her trauma. She would be put on the ground and restrained. Some of the worst things that you can do to a victim of child abuse and a victim of sexual abuse is to throw them on the ground and restrain them. Mm-hmm. So she shares in her in her uh, videos it's not what's wrong with the person, it's what happened to them. We don't ask the right questions. We immediately 
um, uh, look at someone being bad or that they're a monster uh, mm-hmm. because of the actions that they've taken when, in fact, they're a hurt person. Um, I've heard uh, the psychiatrist Sandra Bloom say on many occasions, hurt people hurt others, mm-hmm. which then gets back to my first point, and that's in regards to future. Um, as a young social worker, I was doing a session with a young man. Uh, I was really fond of him. He was he was so bright and intelligent. And he says to me, Gray, why do I have to go to school? He was a sophomore in high school. He yeah. said, why do I got to go to school? I got to follow all these rules. I got to do all this homework assignment. I'm really kind of sick of it. And I looked at him and I said, well, it's the f- steps you take in order to go to college. Mm-hmm. You're college material. You're, you're exceptionally bright. He was a young man in foster care. He was a victim of abuse and neglect. And he looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, I mean, you're, you're college material. He goes, I'm not even going to live till I'm 21. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, all of my brothers and cousins and uncles and aunties before me, they've either been incarcerated or they've ended up dead. Mm-hmm. You're asking me to think about my future? Mm-hmm. So to my first point in regards to future, unfortunately, I, I, I hold my, my, my colleagues and my peers accountable to this. We do a lousy job thinking about future. When we diagnose someone with ADHD, when do we stop and think about what the future of is that client? Or you diagnose someone with schizophrenia, or you diagnose an adolescent with a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. What have you just done to their future? Mm-hmm. When you hospitalize a child at five years old um, because you don't have the tools to manage them, and now they've been hospitalized six times in the last three years, mm-hmm. how has that impacted their future? Instead of seeing their parents as someone who's loving and caring and compassionate and they're the rock, they see their parents as someone who can't take care of them. So it changes their view of the world. We really need to be asking the questions, what are our programs, our, our lack of collaboration doing towards the future of clients? We, we don't think about it. A great example of what's happening right now, not that we want to talk about politics, but right this minute, how many Latino kids are afraid to go to school because when they come home at the end of the day, will their parents still be there? Mm-hmm. Or will they have been picked up in an immigration raid? Mm-hmm. That's abuse and trauma happening, and you can't measure it. It doesn't leave a bruise. It doesn't break a bone. But every single day, I'm worried that my parents will be taken from me. Mm-hmm. How do you measure that? What is that doing towards their future and their view of the world? So you're saying in a lot of ways we are causing the abuse and neglect to happen with our family. contributing to it, unfortunately. Uh, contributing, yes. absolutely, because of our action or lack of actions and our perceptions of our families. And our inability to ask the right questions and our inability to see as hurt people as hurt people and our inability to think about what our, our interventions are doing towards the future. Was that in that young man's best interest to have the mom sign over parental rights? Could anyone have— <coughs> predicted that he would never go home. How has that long-term changed the mom's future, that son's future, that family's future? I have a quick question for you, too, regarding uh, the perception. Um, when kids grow up, which they inevitably do, if they, when they were younger, had parents who did not teach them the skills and the abilities to effectively parent, 
Um, it's it's almost like uh, growing up and not having your teacher teach you how to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're blaming the system for that issue. We, we didn't teach them enough. These kids who grow up and they don't have someone to show them how to parent, mm-hmm. um, then turn around and we expect them to be wonderful parents without any sort of modeling mm-hmm. happening for them. Um, the blame that goes to them, how do you feel like we can work with the community to um, educate them on on educating the parents instead of blaming them for something that they didn't know? Yes, this is a great question. Um, Much of community education really needs to be targeted at the people who um, come in contact with families the most. So our our teachers and our school administration, um, many times that is where children are um, penalized and um, are receiving a lot of these perceptions and these labels Um, So the families are also being perceived negatively um, because kids spend the majority of their time in the school system. And really, um, what better place or or even some of the health systems, so uh, uh, pediatricians' offices. So all of these people that um, have very specialized function and Mm -hmm. they work really hard at being good at what their jobs are, teaching and uh, being doctors and things like that, many times they just kind of, put the blinders on and stay right there when really we all need to be holding hands uh, with each other, multidisciplinary approach around Mm -hmm. the families and the children. So um, that's where, where we need to, the the organizations that are more trauma responsive and trauma informed need to do a better job of reaching out with each other and reaching out to, um, to schools and other professions to say, Hey, this is really important. It's important for us to build relationships with these parents. Really important for us to build relationships with these children Absolutely. so that we can ask the right questions, as Gray is saying, so that we can understand rather than judge and mm-hmm. label and then assign um, maybe some kind of punishment or um, or damage their future. So um, I think that's really the key. So that community approach, and I... I'm definitely not old enough to remember this because I'm super young. Um, (laughs) But I believe that the community, um, you know, uh, everyone parenting the children um, was, you know, a big thing. And now everyone is is in their own silo almost. Mm -hmm. So um, nobody wants to get involved with other people's issues. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And so how can we help with that? And and I can give you a quick example. When I was a a young boy, I, uh, I thought I had a future in golf. And I was uh, hitting some golf balls in the front yard, and I broke a window and of the neighbor's house. Um, my mom knew about it before I got home. And uh, the next day when I got to school, my sixth grade teacher knew about it. And then later that week, I had to serve mass, and Monsignor knew about it. I'm like, how did all these people know I broke this window? Yeah. It's because they were communicating with each other. Um, now, we, you know— not just in Kansas City, but in other school districts, kids don't go to their community schools. The schools aren't communicating. Parents aren't going to the schools. It's not the failure of the parents. It's a failure of the entire system at the macro level. Right. It used to be that um, the three greatest impacts, right, were family, faith, and education. And now those aren't, for many families, the top three leading factors. It's mobility. It's finances. It's access. It's the Internet. Those are more driving force. So we really have to be able as a, as a community to increase our communication with each other to say it's okay for me to care about your family without feeling like I'm getting in your business. I know that that was often something that 
my biological family communicated is that you keep what's going on in the family yeah. in the family. And I think sometimes, you know, as an outside person, a neighbor, you know that that is the mentality. And so you don't engage because you realize it's it, people say it's not my business. Who am I to judge as if that you know absolves them of, of any or action. all hotline and, and, yeah. and they'll take care of it. Instead of going over and asking what you can do to help. It's so much easier to let somebody else handle that. You're absolutely right. I mean, people assume I'm not a social worker. I'm not a police officer. How can I have any ability to stop this or intervene or even ask questions? And it sounds like what the both of you are saying is that we do. Everyone has the ability and should be asking those questions of how can I help this family overcome situations that are leading to abuse and neglect. Absolutely. And I know we're coming up to the break. You know, we've had – we had a big fire here, and the media has, has done a lot to show how the community has come together. We had some tornadoes. Uh, the media showed how the community came together. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the, the child abuse and neglect is an epidemic that's happening every day. And if our communities could step up like we've done for the fires and for the tornadoes, it'd be pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So when we return from break, I definitely want to get into what are the some of the concrete things that we can do to help protect our families when we return on Fostering Hope. Welcome back. Before break, we were talking with Gray and Christina about societal factors and got more to the root causes, but also talked about our community as a whole and how communication needs to improve in order to better help our families overcome the barriers that lead to abuse and neglect. And so I know, Liz, uh, you were saying as we were on break that you had some questions that you wanted to ask. I do, absolutely. Um, In both of your opinions, How do you feel like we as a community can achieve the balance between um, enhancing our formal services, you know, state-run services or nonprofit-run services, and also strengthening the natural supports for individuals who who display those risk factors? How can we combine those to effectively work with the community? Well, okay, so you asked kind of a two-part question. One is more uh, Mm community-level. Um, and there are some very specific things that need to happen at the community level, and they're very different from what can, uh, need to happen at the family uh, individual level. But uh, community level, sometimes it comes down to money. Um, prevention programs, there's a, there's a lack of, of money to support prevention programming and interventions at times, and um, prevention is hard to prove. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to show evidence mm-hmm. of something not happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, many times soliciting funding and securing funding for the prevention programs you need is hard. And so if as a community we really rallied around um, demanding that there be more specific money for that, that can be helpful. Along with that community education that we talked about a little while ago and partnering with all aspects of the community, so schools and health professionals and mental health professionals and community organizations. All of that is necessary at the community level. What do you think, Ray? Yes. And then at, the, then at the micro level, at the family level, aside from with my students 
at the universities talking about ethics and best practice, the one thing I consistently want to give them the message, and, and I really love, Nathan, the name of this show, Fostering Hope, because that really is the message. We have to embody hope. We have to acknowledge people. When people start sharing their stories, it's not, um, why did that happen? It's tell me more, right? It's ask the right question. And so we have to really embody hope, and we have to be hope keepers. And um, I just think that's what's so powerful. Very short example, I was involved in a case of a family that was African-American and were faith-driven by their Islamic faith. And as I stopped and asked them, tell me more about who you are, and they began to share, the dad said, you're the first person in this entire mess, all these hotlines, investigations, that anyone has asked me to tell them about me. And I, I don't know how we get away from that. How, how do we neglect to listen to people? Because that's part mm-hmm. of fostering hope. We have to listen because that's the other side of communication, as you're mentioning, and foster hope. How can you foster hope if you're not listening to people and you're judging them? Absolutely. And so it, it sounds like between both of you and what we've talked about on the show today, that there's really that push towards trauma-informed care and experience. And so I know in the child welfare side, everyone, trauma-informed is the buzzword right now. Mm. Trauma-informed, I'm trauma-informed. So it sounds like that might be a positive avenue for our community. How do we implement trauma-informed care into our community bases that aren't social work related? And, and there is there is a little risk, okay. a little caveat. You can't say you're trauma-informed and at the same time strip away a person's natural resilience. Absolutely. You know, if you have a, a client who's 12 years old, who's had a tremendous amount of loss, 12 years of her 12 years of life have all been lost. Her view of the world is that you can't trust adults. She's oppositional, and you want her treatment goal to be compliance, right? You're stripping mm-hmm. away her natural resiliency, and you're not practicing the strengths perspective. So being trauma-informed, I remind people that doesn't mean we, we neglect resiliency. A child who, who's taking food isn't stealing food. That's their survival skill. So then how, how do we mirror those two together? How, how do we become appropriately trauma-informed, even if I work as, as a sales broker? You know, how do I show that I am trauma-informed with the people I interact with? Well, it's a lot of education, and the first thing we need to do, and Christina, you'll probably agree with me, we have to first off agree what the definition of trauma is and what the definition of being trauma-informed is. And right now, um, as much as we are working that direction – there's too many definitions. Okay. You can Google it and you'll get four or five different definitions. And so if Christina's professional view is one direction and mine's a different direction, it's mm-hmm. going to create a barrier for us. So we have a lot of work to do at mm-hmm. all levels, the macro and, and the, the uh, micro level. So how could non-social work people in the community know how to interact uh, with people that they feel uh, might need help or assistance? How can they approach that without being demeaning or or feeling like they're going to offend someone, how would you recommend that? Mm -hmm. So I talk about this all the time when we do mandated reporter trainings and many times with just regular people in the community that aren't mandated reporters, but Mm -hmm. we want them to know how they can be involved. Um, It really boils down to just seeing a person as you want people to see you. When you see someone who might be struggling or you don't, you know, it looks like a difficult situation, but you don't know what it is, um, you think this is a real person. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't a problem. This is a real person. 
who maybe does not have any help besides maybe what I can offer. So just something as simple as going over, I talk to people all the time about being in Walmart or in Target and seeing the family with the kids that are maybe toddlers throwing a tantrum, Mm -hmm. because that's what toddlers do. They're Mm -hmm. just doing their job. And then the parent (laughs) is really upset, and they might be yelling or cursing Mm -hmm. or something like that. There is nothing wrong with going over and saying, oh, my gosh, he's so upset. Do you need help? Is there something I can help with? Would you like me to hold this? Or mm-hmm. um, there, There is nothing wrong with us relating to each other as people and Less offering ourselves. Yeah. yeah, and coming alongside each other. Instead of judging that they're an awful parent. Yeah. Because yeah. what parent hasn't had a tantrum toddler? Really? Right. Seriously. <laughs> I sometimes throw a tantrum as an adult in the Me grocery too. store. Yeah, he still does. <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry and I want certain things. He definitely things, you know? still does that. <laughs> <laughs> No, that that absolutely makes sense. It's that shifting focus because I think that what we get is people either don't say anything or they will go and badmouth the parent in the grocery store. Yes. Like, I can't believe you're yelling at your kid or I can't believe you're letting your kid act a fool. Right. And instead it's the how can I help you. It completely changes that. And sometimes people are really put off when you go up and ask if you, if, if they need help. Yeah. Because that never happens. happens. Exactly. And so the more the that right we question. do that yeah. as a society – then people will be more welcoming of help. Yep. So it just needs to be more normalized that we partner and come alongside each other. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. So change everyone, no matter what your profession, no matter where you are. Everybody has just the ability saying, I'm to going do. to care and I'm going to ask in a way that protects and realizes that you're human can get us on a, tr- a place where we are able to say we've done something to try to prevent families from going through an abuse or neglect situation. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I want to thank you both. I wish that we had hours and hours. I'm sure the people listening wish we had hours and hours or they wish that we didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> I am, for one, really happy that you we have this. Are and amazing. as we wrap this up, I do want to offer a couple of numbers for, for those who are listening as this is Child Abuse Prevention Month. And, of course, our focus is always Child Abuse Prevention 365 Days. But there are some numbers that I want you you all to know. If you suspect abuse and neglect in your community, in your Missouri community, a number you can call is 1-800-392-3738. And for our Kansas community, that number is 1-800-922-5330. You've been listening to Fostering Hope, brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect, a comprehensive regional support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children. To learn more about how to become a foster parent or how you can help vulnerable kids in other ways, please visit us on our social media or contact us via email nathan at fosteradopt.org. Thank you.